For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And Father, we humbly ask that by your Holy Spirit now, as we open the word of God, that you would open up our minds to comprehend these scriptures. We ask, Lord, you'd give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your word you've given to us. And you know what that means for each one of us, Lord. So take away the distractions in our hearts and minds and things that would keep us from hearing very clearly what you, by your Holy Spirit, would want to say to us personally through this text and in this hour. So we ask, Lord, speak, and we pray you'd minister to us by your Spirit, and we believe that you will. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, there is something very moving, uh, I think, about hearing a a great recovery story. You know, we've seen all these storms, unfortunately, recently that have impacted uh, our nation and other areas. And because of that, we hear about, maybe we see some of the great recovery stories that take place. And there's just something really moving about hearing a, a really great recovery story. Well, I want you to know the best rescue story that exists actually isn't going to show up, unfortunately, on the news. Uh, but it's actually recorded eternally forever right here in this thing we call the Bible. Uh, and that's the rescue story of how the God of heaven, loving creation and humanity, who he gave existence to, uh, rescued us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and there's this incredible rescue mission that God performed for our lives through sending Jesus. Whether we realize that or not as people, we need to be rescued by God. And this is really what this section of Colossians is speaking to us about. It's speaking to us about God's work of reconciliation, God's rescue and his ability to reconcile the fallen sinful world back to himself, rescuing us through the finished work of the sending of his son Jesus Christ into this earth and what Jesus did for us. Again, in this section, as we kind of turn the corner in Colossians chapter 1, there around verse 15 we saw last time, in this section Paul is focusing on explaining really the heart of the letter now, which is the superiority of Jesus Christ, the importance of of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ over all things, particularly in regards to some of the Gnostic heresy that was being propagated and trying to influence the church, declaring many truths we saw beginning in verse 15 uh, about who Jesus is, that he's the image of the invisible God, that he's the firstborn over all creation, that he's the head of the church, and that he should have the preeminence, therefore, in all things. And so now Paul goes on to tell us what Jesus is coming 
to earth, living as a man, and then dying upon the cross, has accomplished for each of us that God has used it for our spiritual welfare. Look with me in verse 19, where Paul, speaking again here continuously about Jesus, he tells us, verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So Paul here in these verses explaining God's desire that it actually pleased God. He says it didn't, God didn't do this reluctantly. He says it actually pleased God. That's God's desire uh, and as well, the work of reconciliation for humanity. The main point of what's being discussed here comes to us in verse 20, that phrase where it says to us there, how God, by him, by Jesus, reconciled us back to himself. Now, when we think of the word reconcile, the word reconcile means to restore friendly relations or harmony that once existed before in a relationship, but has been disrupted and ruined. Again, reconcile, to restore friendly relations and harmony that once existed before in a relationship. There was harmony and, and intimacy, it once existed, but that harmony and relationship has been disrupted and ruined because of something that's happened. And that is what is necessary between God and humanity. As the result of what happened all the way back, the Bible tells us, in the very Garden of Eden, in the initial creation experience. When mankind was first created, we see that Adam had perfect harmony and relationship with God. It says that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. And we see Adam walking in total intimacy, friendship, relationship with God as his creator. Uh, there, was, there was a oneness, there was a unity, this perfect harmony of relationship in intimacy. And yet we know what happened. Adam disobeyed God. He rebelled against God's command. He disregarded what God had asked, giving one prohibition and causing offense in the relationship or what we would call sin. That Adam offended his creator, Adam sinned against God, and we know that the Bible teaches and shows us that sin causes separation and death. So when God said to Adam, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What took place when Adam disregarded that command and one prohibition of God was that not only physical death entered the world, but spiritual death. That, that, that the relationship, the, the life and intimacy that existed spiritually, the spiritual life between man and his creator, that, that lost, in a sense, its ability to keep functioning the way it did. So not only did physical death come into creation, which was never God's plan originally, it's the result of sin, but more than that, worse, spiritual death. Because Adam lost his capacity spiritually to have living fellowship with God as the result of his sin. A barrier, a wedge, a separation came about and that closeness and intimacy that once existed was disrupted and ruined by man's choice to sin. That's why when God comes into the garden after Adam had disobeyed him and sinned, it says that God came into the garden and what was Adam doing? He was now hiding from God. 
he realized something had happened something had gone wrong and now he's from being in total intimacy and closeness with God he feels awkward with God he feels disconnected he he feels shame he feels a sense of, of, of that there's not the same relationship because that had been disrupted and God comes looking for Adam and you remember God's word he says Adam where are you and what have you done I don't think God was saying that like a angry police officer or an upset judge. I think God's heart was rent with heartbreak. Adam, what have you done? Adam, this fellowship, this closeness that we had, what have you done? What's, and, and there was this reality both for man and for God in that moment that the effect of sin had damaged and ruined relationship between God and man. And they were now severed in this capacity of having fellowship. So the capacity of spiritual life and relationship with God, Adam lost in that experience. And therefore, Adam, in a sense, not only experienced the capacity to now die physically, but spiritual death. The light went out spiritually and he lost spiritual life, the capacity to have life and relationship with God. And you and I, all of us, the one thing we share in common is we're all born of Adam originally. We all, in a sense, have the same descendancy. It's from one man in the Garden of Eden. So every one of us who's been born of the flesh, born of Adam originally, we receive that spiritual condition by nature. Adam can only pass on to us what he possessed, which was physical life that would live for a time and then die. But he had no spiritual life to pass on to us because he lost that capacity. So as the result of that, we are all born prone to sin we're all born prone to sin we have the sin nature adam inherited and we inherit it from adam and that's why we then just begin to sin we're born sinful and we just prove that out by living our life and then beginning to commit sin as we live our lives the bible teaches that we are born separated from god spiritually that we're not born physically beginning this life with the capacity to have a relationship with god we're born with the lights out spiritually we don't possess relationship with god we're born spiritually dead because that is all adam could pass on to us so the capacity within us to have spiritual life is dead and it needs to therefore be reawakened there needs to be a spiritual experience that turns the light on spiritually so that we can come alive spiritually and then have relationship with God the way God originally intended in the Garden of Eden. So we have to be rescued from this condition of being spiritually dead and disconnected from God and God loving us, not wanting separation, desiring relationship that we would spend eternity with him. He knew this reconciliation was needed between him and humanity. And so therefore, God did what he did through Christ. Notice first with me, if you would, who it was that initiated and pursued and made the efforts of reconciliation between God and man. The Bible says it was God. This is what our text is telling us. Look with me. It says there, God was who reconciled all things to himself. Verse 20. It was God who reconciled all things to himself. This is clearly indicating to us the innocent victim was the one who sought reconciliation. The one who was the person who had been victimized in the relationship. The one who had been hurt and, and, and the one who was hurting and, and the one who, who in a sense was the innocent party seeks out the guilty party to try and bring reconciliation. 
And this just speaks of the incredible love of God, that God himself sought reconciliation with the one and the ones, you and I, who were actually guilty of hurting the relationship, damaging the relationship, ruining the relationship, that God is the one who pursues us. It's not hard to imagine that God's the innocent party in this situation here. God's done nothing wrong. God has given to mankind life and breath and love and all things, yet in our own ways, in human ingratitude, let's not just point the finger at Adam as if somehow uh, we would have done much better there in the garden. In our own ways as human beings, we all, in human ingratitude, all of humanity, reject God, we hurt and offend God, we've dishonored God, we've disrespected Him in our lives by our sinful actions, wrong things we've thought or said or done, that wound God, that dishonor Him, that, that cause offense towards Him in our rebellion and day, ways in our lives. And sin causes that relationship to be severed and ruined. And yet the wonderful thing is the Word of God teaches us God did not wait for us to realize our error. And God did not wait for us to try and reconcile ourselves. God took the initiative, the Bible says, to reconcile all things back to Himself. God in his love took the initiative to pursue us. That's what I call love and mercy and grace to the highest degree. That God pursued us. God sought out reconciliation and restoration in the relationship. That proves the depths of God's love, not only for people, but for you. For you personally. That he sought you out to bring reconciliation. He didn't stubbornly leave us estranged and without any hope of restoration. God denied his own rights as the innocent person in the situation. He denied his own rights and sacrificed himself personally to bring about reconciliation with the one who was guilty in the world of all of our offense. He lovingly took initiative in the purest restoration form that has ever been accomplished. And let me just say in light of that, let us remember that in our relationships with people when at times our relationships become strained or damaged and that happens among us because of what things maybe someone does to us that if God himself would humbly deny his rights as being 100% innocent and he would deny his rights and seek to be the one to sacrificially pursue reconciliation as the innocent victimized one, certainly we as people ought to be willing to humble ourselves to do the same. Because I can tell you quite frankly, when something happens and a relationship gets strained or you know ruined or whatever, I probably can't say that I'm 100% innocent in every situation where something like that happens. I mean, even if I could have the best case scenario, well, I mean, I'm, they're 95% wrong. I'm only 5% wrong. Still, God was 100% right. And he denied himself and he lovingly sought reconciliation. I think it's a good reminder for us so that we don't try and put our arrogant stake in the ground and hold off reconciliation when maybe we should be the one to humble ourselves and pursue it. And notice the extent as well. It tells us here that God was willing to go to seek and provide reconciliation. Speaking of Jesus in verse 19, it says to us that it pleased the, the Father, it pleased God, and in him all the fullness should dwell and by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, that describes how God himself, listen, who was the one that was sinned against, 
didn't just say, okay, I'm willing to provide reconciliation here. So I'll find out some way as disconnected as possible that maybe we could get back together. God doesn't just send a way or give an offer of salvation. The Bible teaches God actually became the way of salvation. God himself became the savior. He didn't say, well, I mean, what, what they did to me. Okay, I'll, I'll hire somebody to go save them. He actually said, no, I'll go save them myself. And he actually became the Savior. The way God became the Savior is described here through the sending of his one and only son to be fully God and fully man in order to reunite God and man, to be the perfect mediator. It's what Jesus really was declaring even in those familiar statements in John 3 where he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever shall believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, God didn't have to send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. The world needed to be saved. And God took it upon himself to become the savior. And Paul is describing here in this verse how that process unfolded. God determined to reconcile humanity by coming to humanity. And the way he did that, verse 19 tells us, was that it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness would dwell. So God did this by, again, another biblical declaration we see here, please take note, of the divinity of Jesus. By allowing his son Jesus to be the one, the representative, if you would, of the Trinity among the Godhead to come and live as a man and die sacrificially. And again, it says it pleased God that it would happen in this way. That is, this actually brought pleasure to the heart of God that his own son, innocent, pure, and perfect, would come to mankind as God in the flesh as a representative. It says here, please the Father that in Jesus all the fullness would dwell. When you look at the, the Greek construct of what's rendered there, it could be rendered because in him, Jesus, God the Father was pleased that all the fullness of d divinity would dwell in a body of flesh upon the earth. When you look at the terms that Paul uses there, that word fullness, it speaks of the sum total of all divine power attributes and nature the sum total of all divine power and attributes and nature of god's divinity all of that the bible says was dwelling in christ every aspect of what it means that god is divine was present in the physical life and body of his son jesus christ Paul's going to say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, regarding Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus. And that word dwells that Paul uses there, in Jesus, all the fullness of divine nature dwells. It's a term in the Greek that means to be at home permanently. To take a permanent residence. And, and what it's conveying there, very important, is, is what's being described had permanent residence in a location. The Bible knows nothing of, well, the Spirit of God, yeah, he, he came upon this man, Jesus of Nazareth, or the Christ Spirit rested upon Jesus. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible says, no, the eternal Spirit of God himself took up a second nature, 
and became resident all the fullness of the divinity of the Godhead it says was present permanently from the very beginning until who Jesus is to this very hour now being glorified in heaven it all dwelled within Jesus all the fullness of divinity was in Christ God wrapped himself in human flesh to live among humanity to restore relationship and for the reason being that Jesus was God dwelling in bodily form therefore that's why he could be the perfect mediator that's why he could reconcile us that's why Jesus could serve in a way where it says what pleased God was he made all the divinity that was within the, the eternal Godhead dwell within the physical human body of Jesus Christ so Jesus is now fully divine and fully human at the same time in touch with divinity and in touch with humanity and that's why the Bible says God sent Jesus in this way so that by him Jesus God could reconcile then all things back to himself listen to how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 5 it's very important it says this now all things are of God that is they have their origin from God and then it says this who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ that is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them for God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him do you hear what the Bible says there God was in Christ God was in the person of Jesus Christ reconciling the world back to himself being fully God and fully at the same time human being the perfect bridge to be able to take two estranged parties holding the hand of both and to become the mediator so this amazing concept Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus God our Savior the man Christ Jesus and look what it personally cost God there at the end of verse 20 Paul describes the cost of reconciliation that was needed it says there that God the Father made peace that is resolved conflict through the blood of Jesus Christ through the blood of Jesus's cross the Bible tells us from the standpoint of judicial in a sense eternal judgment we always must remember sin can't just be winked at you know, God couldn't just ignore sin or decide okay I'll just forget about it sin required consequence and punishment the crimes and offenses of humanity could not be overlooked a payment was necessary there needed to be a satisfaction of what it calls the offense between the two parties between God and humanity and it required God being willing to allow his own son the Bible says to suffer brutally to be cruelly mistreated at the hands of men and to actually have to suffer tremendous punishment for all of our failures for all of our selfish actions and the wrong things that we did that it required God an incredible cost Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all it says in Isaiah 53 actually that it pleased Yahweh God to bruise him the idea there is it brought pleasure to God's heart because as painful as it was he knew this is what is necessary 
to bring reconciliation with Tony and with you. This is what's necessary. And though it was incredibly painful, it required the death of the sinless Son of God to satisfy divine justice. The eternal peace treaty that was necessary cost God immensely, immensely. It cost God the shedding of his own son's blood that was sinless and so it could be the perfect peace treaty satisfaction terms so that we could be back in relationship with God. Peter says it this way, knowing you were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and spot. Imagine God had to watch his son painfully suffer disgrace and dishonor among humanity who had done so much to offend and hurt God already, but that precious blood of Jesus is what satisfied the wrath of God so that it could be turned away from you and I and so that God could dwell with us in harmony and give us access into relationship with Him and have restoration. Romans 5 says it this way, God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The demonstration of God's love. When we were at our worst, God gave us his best. That's the love of God that he has for us. And again, let us never forget the wonder of this reality, of this process of reconciliation, the immense cost, the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, to make peace with us. It says there that this all pleased the Father to do this. The idea is that God didn't do this reluctantly. It's not like God said, oh, I just, all right. All right, I'll do it. Somebody has to do what's right. God wasn't reluctant. It brought pleasure to the heart of God. Do you want to know why? Because he was thinking about the reality of you personally being able to be forgiven and having your guilt taken out of your life. And being able to know him in a personal way. And it pleased God because he said, you know what? It is going to please my heart so much the day that they get this and understand this and realize the depths of my love and that they actually have a relationship with me. Oh, man. The pleasure that that brought to God's heart that you could be in a relationship with him. That you could be in, with him eternally in heaven forever and ever. Well, Paul describing this further wants to amplify how far the extent God would go. Look what he says, verse 21 and 22. He says, and you who were once alienated, this is the description of life before salvation, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. So here he amplifies the far-reaching extent that God lovingly went to in order to change our spiritual condition. And he uses terms here that are purposely almost somewhat you know, dramatic and graphic because whether we realize it or not at the time, before we entered into a relationship with Jesus, it wasn't as if, well, I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of tension between us and God. The Bible says we were completely alienated from God. Completely alienated from God spiritually, totally separated. We had no connection or relationship whatsoever. Due to our spiritually dead condition and our own personal sin, the Bible says we were cut off from any fellowship with God. There was no relationship whatsoever. That is truly what our condition was 
before we came into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We were estranged from God on bad terms with no relationship at all. There was alienation inwardly in our hearts because we were spiritually dead and sinful people. And that, notice, just produced the rebellious works outwardly. He describes in verse 21, you who were alienated inwardly, therefore became enemies in your mind by wicked works. That this is what caused us. Our whole thinking capacity was darkened and deceived. So we did wrong things, all of us, because we didn't even realize half the time we were doing what was wrong. We didn't even realize how bad we were offending our creator. That the things that we were doing actually were wicked works that offended and dishonored God. The Bible tells us that our condition prior to salvation in Christ is that we were actually enemies. An enemy is someone who's hostile to someone else, who works in total opposition against them. And let me say, being alienated from someone and living like their enemy indicates the worst terms possible. And this is so crucial because we need to realize the extent that took place in order for us to be reconciled. And for an unbelieving person to realize the genuineness of their true condition before God, well, I mean, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm just, all this Jesus stuff and getting saved. And I mean, like, I'm, I'm like coming around, man. I'm like chum-chumming with God a little bit. I'm kind of getting back in there and I'm trying to behave a little better. Now listen, the Bible says, you, you, don't, you don't gradually kind of work your way back. You are God's enemy, the Bible says, spiritually. That is, that is the truth. I'm not God's enemy. That's insulting. No, it's biblical. That is the condition, the Bible says, of our soul, whether we realize it or not. We have to realize from God's divine perspective, a holy, righteous, just, pure, awesome God says this is what our condition is. Despite what we may think of ourselves, we may not be actively believing or acting in that way, but that is the genuine reality of our condition. That's why we're such in desperate need of what God has done for us. And notice the Bible here makes it very clear that God in that hard condition brought about the death of his own son in a physical body dying in our place to bring us back into relationship with him. The extent that God would go to to reach so far from where we're at to pursue us. And again, notice the contrast of the Gnostic heresies. I said that Jesus, creator God, had a physical body. It says, now he has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. In other words, it was necessary for Jesus to have a physical human body if he was going to reconcile physical human beings. So God the Father had to watch his son be scourged and suffer in order to provide this reconciliation. Again, Romans 5.10 says it this way. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, I want you to notice, God changed us from being his enemy to being his adopted child. That's a powerful transition. That's a tremendous transition you know, change that God's brought about in our lives, the extent in God's love he would go to. And now the Bible says, for those of us who've experienced God's reconciliation through Jesus, we're now the ambassadors of this reconciliation. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, Paul says, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, we're now God's ambassadors. 
Because when you experience that reconciliation, God says, okay, now your heart should be overwhelmed with motivation and gratitude and excitement and you have been ordained with my authority. Go out and tell the world. Tell unbelieving people who don't understand. Be reconciled to your God. God wants to reconcile you and this is how you can be reconciled to be able to share that with them. Well, look at the result of this glorious process as Paul goes on in verse 22 to show how our total identity has been changed and upgraded to say the least. Look what he goes on to say. It says, God has done this process of reconciliation through Jesus. What's the ultimate purpose? So that one day he can present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. When we are presented as followers of Christ, as Christians, and we are presented at the throne of God, please take notice here how you are going to be presented in the presence of your creator. You're not going to be viewed in all your failures and mistakes of this life and the sins and the things that you've done that have stained your conscience, the guilt, the shame. Rather, you're going to be presented completely innocent in Christ before the presence of God. It says right here, look, and please hear the word. He will present you, you, He's going to present you, it says, holy, that is pure, clean, and righteous. No matter what things you've done, what stain there is of a mistake in your life, when you're presented before God, it's all erased. You're presented innocent, holy, pure, righteous. And it says he will present you blameless, that is without guilt, for what you're to blame for doing wrong. You're unable to ever be held blamable again in your life for any of the things that you've done wrong in your life. Because in Christ, you've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so your record has been erased. God doesn't see any of that sin any longer. And when you're presented in Christ, imagine this, you'll be presented faultless. As if you've never even made that mistake. As if you've never done that thing. He will present you blameless. And then he says as well, above reproach. That means free from all accusations of any failure. All the charges are dropped. You're completely innocent. Now, let me just say, in this room this morning, we all know personally in our own conscience the degree of our own personal sin and the things that we have done and thought and said that, that are the thing that plague the human conscience. And we know the depth of our own personal sin and to think about the reality that if your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ and you've been reconciled to God by Jesus that one day no matter all that that's true about you and your experience that you're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in the presence of God Jude says that he's able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the presence of his glory I mean, the, the phenomenal reality. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that is your identity this morning. That is your identity this morning in Christ. Your identity is not, oh, I was this, or I was a drug addict, or I'm an adulterer, or I'm a murderer, or I'm a, you know, I, that's not your identity. Your identity is holy, blameless, above reproach, clean, pure in the sight of the Lord. It's a wonderful reality. That's your identity now and that's going to be your presentation when you stand before God one day in the presence of him and his holy angels. Well, Paul then goes on, verse 23, having said these incredible things about reconciliation to say, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, of which, he says, was preached to every creature, this gospel message, of which I, Paul, he says, became a minister. Now, what I want to do, verse 23, Paul says, I became a minister. And as he goes on in verse 23 in the remainder of the chapter, he's going to begin to unfold more of what he's talking about there. And we'll touch upon that as we move forward in our next study together. But I want to focus on what Paul's saying at the beginning of verse 23 in regards to the connection of describing reconciliation. And when you look at the language of how the word if is being used there in the grammar, when you look at how it's used in the grammar and consider it, Paul does not seem here to be speaking of how a person retains or keeps their salvation as much as he seems to be indicating what would demonstrate the sincerity of one actually possessing this experience of reconciliation. When you look at the language there, he's talking about the continuance of remaining in Christ, not being moved away from the faith. He's saying this is what reveals among you Colossians that you truly have experienced reconciliation that you've continued, that you're not moving away from the hope of the gospel that's found in Jesus Christ. See, when someone proclaims to be a Christian and then remains in the faith, in Christ, remains rooted and grounded, they're not moved away from the hope of the gospel, that is the outward indication to others and the internal insurance to that person that they truly have experienced God's reconciliation that they've truly experienced salvation and they've partaken of that experience with Christ because partaking of that divine experience, listen, I always say to my wife, there are two things I know, two things I'm absolutely sure of. There are a lot of things I'm still not sure of. They could always be questionable. I am absolutely sure that I'm saved. There's no one can make me question. I am absolutely sure that I'm saved and I'm absolutely sure that I was supposed to marry her. All the other things are potentially questionable, so I may not be called to be a pastor. <laughs> but I know that I know that I know that Jesus saved my soul Amen. and that I'm reconciled to God. And, 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 and it is that experience in the soul that is so powerful, but yet how is that manifested outwardly? Well, listen, when that powerful experience happens in the soul, you will continue in what Jesus birthed in your soul. And that will be demonstrated by the fact that you continue in the faith, rooted and grounded and steadfast, and that you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, if we hold the confidence in Christ steadfast to the end, and he says, well, that's how you can know that you've become a partaker of Christ, that it's happened. Because that work finishes, because Jesus, the Bible says, finishes the good work he starts. Now, that being said, if someone makes a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus and they don't continue, they don't continue in the faith. They don't continue in following Christ or they move away from trusting the person of Christ alone as their eternal hope for forgiveness and reconciliation. The Bible says that indicates and proves that though they may have professed something with their mouth, it was not an accurate representation and it is not a true reflection of what happened in their heart inwardly. They may have professed the correct things, said the words, or, or maybe even you know, prayed a, a prayer that someone led them in, but they did not truly believe and receive in their heart in a sincere way because salvation is something that happens inwardly in the soul of a human being. Paul says that we confess with our mouth, but we believe in our heart. 
That there is this dual experience. We're just outwardly confessing what's happened in our heart. And so it is so critical for us to understand. And I think Paul's saying this because the Colossians who were once among the church who said they were followers of Christ but then departed after the Gnostic heresy and began to deny Jesus and we don't really need Jesus because we found this higher knowledge in Gnosticism and, and they kind of moved away. They revealed by their departure they were never true followers of Jesus. John writes in verse John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may be made manifest that they were not of us. So Paul's reference here, listen, please, to continuing is not an indication about maintaining a perfect Christian walk and conduct that's free from error and you'll never stumble or sin again or make a mistake. It's about continuation of what we believe to be true of the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us and that what he did for us is the only thing sufficient to save our soul. And it's the only thing that can give to us access into heaven. Listen, there is no security for a person who is not trusting in Christ for who the Bible says he is. There is no security for a person who is not trusting in what Jesus has done and must supply for them to have access into heaven and to be made acceptable before a holy God. There is no security for someone who has put their confidence in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work and his life, death, and resurrection and ascension back into heaven for us. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is not salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And listen, let me say this morning, if you're a theologian and a Bible scholar, regardless of whether you see the if of verse 23, regardless of whether you see it as a statement that proves the sincerity of salvation, or if you choose to view it as a conditional warning of what's necessary to stay right with God if you want to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach when you die. Paul, either way here, is giving a very strong spiritual warning regarding the importance of continuing in our faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and never moving away from the hope of reconciliation with God and acceptance in heaven being found nowhere else except in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And Paul's giving a warning here Having all of our confidence should be in Christ alone, never departing from the faith that the New Testament holds out to us and never allowing other ideas to move us away from the eternal hope that's found in the gospel message of Christ alone. And it seems, even in the early church, this was an ongoing concern to be cautioned among God's people. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 1 saying, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. When Paul wrote to the Hebrews, he said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Again, not an issue here of maintaining perfect conduct, never faltering in our practice. It's an issue of abandoning the faith. The faith of the salvation message through the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who became the Savior of the world and who is the one meter between God and man 
the man Christ Jesus and all who he is. It's an issue of abandoning the faith, moving away, departing from the hope of eternal life, thinking that Jesus and his work really aren't necessary. That there is actually some other things you could do to still be right with God. That there's actually some other way that you could kind of still ultimately kind of have access into heaven. That you could ultimately somehow push enough buttons and you know, work enough angles that, that, that you could present yourself to God without Jesus and having to rely on everything about Jesus or having Jesus save you because you really don't know if you need to be saved. I mean, saved, that's pretty drastic. And thinking that you could actually stand before God on your own. And let me tell you something. To stand before God on your own and ask God to judge you based upon how well you did living according to his standards, I was going to say it's borderline, but that's insanity. That's just insanity, I'll be honest. But what a wonderful thing to know the opposite is true. The Bible says to be without Christ is without hope, but to teach that we can be made right in Jesus Christ. We have to be made right to be acceptable to God. We have to be made right, and that's what happens. When you come to Jesus, he takes away all of your sin, and he gives you all of his righteousness so that you're made right and acceptable to God, and now you can have a personal living relationship with God through a relationship with Jesus, not religion. And you can have a, a, a capacity to be righteous and acceptable to God so that you can enter heaven after you die. That's what the idea means of being accepted in the beloved, accepted in Christ. You know, this morning, I, I would emphasize this very simple question. Have you been reconciled to God yet? Personally. By receiving that through coming and receiving what Jesus Christ must do for you. If yes, ladies and gentlemen, then let us live appreciatively. Something small and simple didn't happen here. Something incredible has happened here. Peter writing to the believers said the believer should no longer live the rest of his lifetime in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. So Peter says, have we forgotten what God's done for us? He said, we spent enough of our past lifetime living after the flesh and I mean just being selfish and foolish and he says listen you've been reconciled to God live for the will of God the rest of your life now let it motivate you to serve the Lord in gratitude and this morning if you're here and you've not been personally reconciled to God yet and maybe for the first time it, it clicks in your mind you, wow I mean yeah I've, I've sat in church and I've been coming but I don't know if I've I don't know if I've ever been reconciled to God well listen this morning I hope you understand your position and know that God wants to change that. He loves you. My encouragement to you is don't delay. Receive the free gift that's offered to you of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Shall we stand together? Let's pray.